0: Hello and welcome to the Dorcomotive Podcast with Brian Loans. On this episode, we tell the story of the best, worst ship ever. The SS Great Eastern was built in the 1850s and it was an incredible technological revolution. Unfortunately, it was pretty much useless and bankrupted almost everybody that came into contact with it. This is the story of an incredible ship, a ship that wandered the world for nearly 30 years and almost did it without purpose. This episode of the Dorkomotive Podcast is being presented by NitroActive.net. NitroActive.net carries the best in nostalgia West Coast drag strip t-shirts as well as hot rod and car culture t-shirts from places like Moon Eyes, Laidback, Lucky 13, SoCal Speed Shop, Hollywood Hot Rods, and more. They also have a massive inventory of vintage collectible hot rod, car craft, hop-up, popular hot rodding, drag racing, super stock, and drag illustrated magazines, as well as classic and vintage photos. Visit Nitroactive.net for all your vintage hot rod and drag racing needs. Use promo code DORK at checkout and save 10% on your next purchase at Nitroactive.net. Welcome to this episode of the Dorkomotive Podcast. We're telling an incredible story today, the story of this wandering colossus of a ship known as the SS Great Eastern, and one that is nearly beyond belief because of not only the time period it happened in, but because of what this ship was designed to do, what it didn't do, and then ultimately what it did do in connecting the world in so many ways that we now take for granted. But we really have to start telling this story in the time period that it happens in. The 1850s were an amazing period, not so much in the United States as much as they were in England. We're talking about the Industrial Revolution. We're talking about the harnessing of steam to make power, steam to run things like pumps and factories and even giant engines to power ships. And when we talk about the Industrial Revolution in England, the real big kind of overriding thing that happened during that time period is it really was the first time in modern human history that people felt as though they could kind of engineer their way around any situation. The possibilities seemed almost boundless for what human beings could accomplish and what they could do because people were figuring out these mysteries of the universe. They were using math, they were using science, they were using new metallurgy to build things like bridges and structures that they didn't even know were possible just a few short years before. And all of this stuff was really being driven by a kind of an elite class of human being that had not been looked at the way they were being looked at in these 1850s, and these were the engineers. Engineers were almost godlike during the Industrial Revolution in England because they were the ones leading the way, and the other thing they were doing was making people a lot of money. One of the reasons the Industrial Revolution succeeded as much as it did is because it was about as much about profit as it was about advancing human technology. The advancements in technology made rich people very rich. They would stake these engineers. They would stake these different projects. They would invest in them. And then when they bore fruit, the rich folks that staked the engineers made a pile of money, and the engineer that succeeded became kind of a rock star. So you're going to hear some names during the telling of this story of the SS Great Eastern, and one of them is a man named Isambard Kingdom Brunel. And we'll get into what Isambard Kingdom Brunel was all about in just a few minutes, but we need to talk about the audacity of what this ship was when we stack it up to when it was built in the middle of the 1850s. This was the era of the clipper ship, this was the era of sailing, and this was the era of, yes, some things having steam engines, but really, there weren't many steam-powered ships that were doing anything of consequence as far as ocean travel. I'm going to be quoting a lot from a book here called The Great Iron Ship, and it's an incredible document an incredible history of the SS Great Eastern written by a man named James Dugan. And opening up the book, James Dugan, in the first chapter, to quote him, really sets the scene for this whole story. So here is how James Dugan lays out for us what the SS Great Eastern was intended to do, intended to be, and how it absolutely was phenomenally out of control when compared to everything else that was being built in the world of mechanical objects in the 1850s. And I quote, She was to be the wonder of the seas, a mighty home of the deep, the equivalent of five capital hotels. The ship had six masts and five funnels more than any ship has ever carried. She had two sets of engines indicating the the then inconceivable strength of 11,000 horses, enough to run all the cotton mills in Manchester, they said. One power plant turned 58-foot paddle wheels and the other motivated a 24-foot screw propeller, still the largest a ship has carried to this time period. Fully laid in the Great Eastern was to outweigh the combined tonnage of the 197 English ships that fought the Spanish Armada. The only size analogy was Noah's Ark. Somebody remembered that Sir Isaac Newton had calculated its dimensions. He had determined that the biblical cubit at 20 and a half inches, which produced an ark 515 feet long and 86 feet wide with a tonnage of 18,231 tons. The Great Eastern was a vessel of 22,500 tons displacement. The Great Eastern carried 6,500 square yards of sail, an impressive figure even at the height of the clipper ship era. The big ship carried 20 lifeboats. She was to have a feature still unmatched in nautical history, a pair of 100-foot satellite steamers hanging from her sides. Passengers privileged to voyage on her to find gas illumination and electric light on the main mast, bathing the ship in perpetual moonlight. And air trunks ventilating the inner cabins, which were three times the size of the finest staterooms afloat. The great ship was to award the ocean traveler the final boon. She would abolish seasickness. She was longer than the trough of the largest storm wave measured by Sir William Scoresby, the oceanographer, and would ride so stably that regiments of raw recruits could be drilled on her deck on the way to war. And, oh, Americans could duel without having their aim disturbed as well. The ship was 120 feet wide, too broad for the Panama Canal, opened a half century later. Her displacement was not exceeded for 49 years after launching her. This ship was built in the mid-1850s, and nothing larger than it would be produced until the past the time period of 1910. We're going to get into all these details, but that sets the scene, that sets the attitude, if you will, of the SS Great Eastern. So who is this guy, Isambard Kingdom Brunel, and how did he come up with the idea to build a ship that was five times larger than any object afloat in the world during the 1850s. Let's find out. So one of the things we first have to know about Isambard Kingdom Brunel is about his name Isambard was his given first name Kingdom uh, was not some religious reference it was in fact his mother's maiden name and then Brunel is his dad's last name his dad was named Mark Brunel and his dad was a famous engineer and inventor in England a man who made and lost fortunes like so many did but a man who put his son into the best schools and who trained him from almost birth to be an engineer and the work that Mark Brunel put into his son very early the education that he gave his son in France at the finest at that time known mathematical schools uh, created a human being known as the little giant and Brunel at his tallest was about five feet or less there are photos of him that indicate he probably wasn't even five feet tall he was right around that uh, area he would always wear very tall hats to give himself a little bit more of a um, how should we say illusion of height during the course of his life now uh, Isambard Kingdom Brunel was born in 1806, and his dad was the guy who came up with the first concept to build a tunnel under the Thames River. And Brunel himself, um, Isambard in this case, was nearly killed twice while trying to execute his dad's vision for that project. We'll talk about that in a little while. But by the time Isambard, uh, Kingdom Brunel, was 17 years old, he was working full time for his dad. Uh, at his dad's firm or on jobs his dad was working on. His dad made a lot of money by uh, figuring out better ways to build the wooden blocking that was so popularly used in sailing ships um, in order to, you know, move sails around and to uh, the various miles of ropes that those uh, ships relied on. His dad built a lot of the blocking and came up with more efficient ways to manufacture that blocking and made himself a lot of money. He also took that technology and translated it into the making of shoes, and he was able to basically uh, be the shoemaker for Wellington's uh, English army for a period of time. But, like so many people throughout this particular time in history, um, his dad found himself uh, broke at at various times. Brunel was seen, his father was seen as such a national resource when he was at his most broke. He was uh, talking to the Russians, the Russian government or the Russian royal family at the time, about going to work for them and doing some projects in Russia, to which point the English government said not so fast, and they began to pay him a stipend to basically keep him in the country. But in 1825, Isambard Kingdom Brunel, the son, is working on his dad's masterwork, which is going to be this tunnel underneath the Thames River. They're building it with a unique... Uh, interesting style that had never been used for tunneling before. They're basically tunneling under the riverbed and uh, it is not going well. Uh, It has collapsed a couple of times. Brunel, Isambar Brunel is nearly killed twice when the roof kind of caves in. He goes in and has to save people. He gets washed out, nearly drowns. And while that tunnel would be completed in 1843, Brunel was on to a much more kind of uh, diverse portfolio of projects by that time in his life. We're talking about a guy who really never did anything small. When this guy built a bridge, it was going to be the longest bridge in history at that time, which it was, a 702-foot span that was made of cast iron. And really, uh, one of his real masterworks is this particular bridge that uh, still, you know, stands today. And the practice and work that was created behind it and to engineer it is also seen as kind of revolutionary. And well, the materials, you don't see bridges made out of cast iron anymore anymore, um, the practices that were put in place to actually construct the bridge are still very much part of what we would consider a modern engineering practice. So when we talk about hospitals that he built, dockyards, railroads... He was the mastermind behind one of the great um, British civil engineering projects of all time, which was the Great Western Railroad, which um, brought the trains to the western part of the UK. And it was a massive project, and he was um, really kind of rocketed, if you will, to national heroism by championing that project. The one thing he kind of messed up on, if you will, was the fact that he demanded that the trains on the Great Western Railroad Use a seven-foot-wide gauge railroad track, which was independent of anything else that was going on in the country. So, the trains on the Great Western Railroad were built to a different spec than almost any other locomotive in the country. Eventually, uh, the British Parliament was like, "Hey, we got to like, we got to go back to normal on this, so we can use all of our trains." So, there was a period in the Great Western Railroad's life that it had the wide seven-foot gauge track as well as the more um, normal what four and three quarter gauge and then it had even small uh, narrow gauge tracks all set inside of each other so all three styles of locomotives could travel over the tracks there were some benefits to the seven foot wide gauge you could build larger boilers you had a little bit more robust uh, ability for the locomotive to be stable at speed but also it was a one-off you already had a country that was very much on rails at that time and uh for brunel It was a battle that he lost ultimately in the Parliament, um, and it was interesting that he fought it that far. It did not tarnish his reputation, but it was uh, kind of one of his quirks and one of the things that he thought was a better mousetrap, but didn't actually get kind of uh, discovered or made that way over the course of his life. So we talk about the things he's accomplishing, and we also have to talk about what he's doing in the world of ships and nautical construction. As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, this was the era of the clipper ship. So multi-masted big sailing ships that would, uh, they were the fastest ships on the water at that point. And yes, they depended on the air, but they could move a lot of freight and they were the most kind of efficient things at the time. If you can consider it, a clipper ship in the 1830s, 1840s was the, like, I not to say the space shuttle of its, of its day, but really was kind of close, you know, covering these vast distances. Um, this was before the telegraph. You know, they were carrying messages, cargo, mail, kind of all the stuff. And so uh, Brunel, being a, an engineer, technically a civil engineer, but certainly a guy who was obsessed with machines and mechanical things, um, he figured there's got to be a better way than these sailing ships. And what he figured was, let's develop a screw-style propeller for a ship, which he does. So he is really the guy who leads the charge on putting big screw-style propellers on um, cargo ships. And this was done in the 1830s and 1840s. He is trying to sell this concept to the British Navy. Uh, he wants them to look at it and think this is the more efficient, most efficient way to go, and we could use this guy's designs, and we could really kind of change things. In 1843, Brunel designs and oversees the construction of a ship called the Great Britain. It is an iron-hulled ship, which is kind of not rare, but it's kind of forward-looking at this point, and it, use, it uses screw propulsion. And so it has a big, giant propeller, the kind we expect to see on every single ship and every single boat in the world in 2020, but back then, in 1843, it was revolutionary. And so the Great Britain is able to set some records going across the ocean and and doing its work. And Brunel is now recognized not only as a civil engineering genius, but also as a naval design genius. So he's riding this wave and he's riding this wave and he needs to find kind of the next step. And what he figures the next step is, is to build a really, truly massive ship. And the reason he wants to build a massive ship is because he knows what we all know about economies of scale. If you're going to move people, or you're going to move products, or you're going to move materials, the more of them you can move at a time, the cheaper, per unit, it costs to move them. If you got a ship that can carry 10 tons of something, or you have a ship that can carry 100 tons of it, um, if you're going to cover the same distance, moving 100 tons at a time is a whole lot more efficient than moving 10. For the overall and overriding shipbuilding experience he needs, he hooks up with a guy named John Scott Russell. And Russell is a Scottish engineer that actually is in charge of constructing the ship. And he is also a large part of the design of the ship. Conceptually, Brunel gets credit for the Great Eastern because he's the one who comes up with the ideas on how to propel it, on the size it should be. But when we talk about his actual build and then the design of the hull, we have to talk about John Scott Russell. Scott Russell designed something called the Waveline Theory or the Waveline Design of Ship Hulls. And basically, it is kind of the modern way that we look at a ship today. He was able to do some very basic studies and watch the way that ships and model boats move through the water. And he figured out, hey, if you put a really narrow point on the hull of this thing and then kind of expand it back, it's way more efficient than the kind of blunted noses that run a lot of boats during this time or a lot of ships on this time. So... In the 1840s, he is building ships, he's becoming successful, and he buys a ship-building yard called the Millwall Ironworks. He buys that in 1848. He builds two ships for Brunel during this time. He mentioned the Great Britain, and the Great Britain had a sister ship. And these were sent across the world. They went to did service all the way to Australia. They did service across the Atlantic. And they proved to be good, solid ships. And they proved to be the things that both... Russell and Brunel needed to prove out their theories that they would employ in the Great Eastern. So one of the problems with sending ships to Australia was that there was very limited places to get coal and water along the way. Once you got past a certain point, mainly Africa, um, there really wasn't anywhere to stop. You would have to go way out of your way to some small islands, and even there you can run into some problems if the supply depots are empty. So understanding the inherent problems servicing the area of Australia gets Brunel, and gets Russell talking. Like, how do we build the ultimate ship to service this part of the world? Knowing that they could build the best mousetrap possible, they kind of sit down and they start coming up with some ideas. And to quote and to close this particular pre-planning portion of the show, I'm going to once again quote Mr. Dugan in his book The Great Iron Ship at a close of the chapter about Isambard Kingdom Brunel when he writes, The engineers were running the world. The capitalists eagerly tried to keep up with their blueprints. The common people were prepared to go anywhere with the golden engineers. Royalty deferred to them. The applied mechanical mind would conquer anything. The exhibition was the cachet of machine-age genius, and in this triumphant hour, Brunel and John Scott Russell entered the tragic climax of their lives. They determined to build the Iron Leviathan. That Iron Leviathan would be known as the SS Great Eastern we need to talk about exactly what these two guys are trying to build. We also have to keep reminding ourselves it's only the middle 1850s. And in some ways, it's even earlier than that, because the real concept of this ship was drawn up on what we would call a napkin in today's world as a brief sketch in 1851 by Brunel. It would take three years to interest people enough to get the capital raised to build the ship, And the way that Brunel did this, and again, I mentioned this at the beginning of the show, but if you were an engineer that wanted to build some grandiose project, you needed to find rich people to fund it. Because if you failed to find the funding, you'd never be able to get to see your vision come to life. So what Brunel decided was that having built the two ships with Russell and sending them to Australia, he understood the deficit, he understood the downfall of what their current strategy was, And once again, I quote James Dugan in his book, The Great Iron Ship, by explaining that strategy as it was explained by Brunel. Brunel wrote at the time, vessels much larger than have been previously built could be navigated with great advantage from the mere effect of size. Again, again, it's all about economies of scale. So this was the largest kind of uh, shareholding investment ever made in a ship at that time. To continue on, Brunel says, nothing is proposed but to build a vessel of the size required to carry your own coal on the voyage. A 22,000-mile round trip to Australia, to Bombay, to places uh, really in the Orient as well. The merchant fleets of the Eastern Hemisphere were to become slaves to the Leviathan, which was the working name of the ship, by shuttling goods and passengers to and from across the oceans. Brunel showed that 40% of the capital investment would be earned back each year, effectively making the entire ship uh, paid off in two years. As we will find out, the Great Eastern becomes one of the worst financial investments in the history of financial investments over the course of its lifespan. So 1851, we get the drawing, we get the specs, and we get the ideas about what this ship is going to be. And it is nothing short of astonishing. The idea... 18,914 gross tons, or 27,384 tons of total displacement. A ship 692 feet long, 120 feet across, that would pull a 30-foot draft, meaning there is 30 feet of the ship under the water as it sits. It took four years to build. 1854, they laid the keel down. 1858, the ship was finished. And it was not built like any other ship in history to that point. It was built lengthwise along the River Thames because there was no dry dock in the world big enough to put it in. It was also so long that if they had built it lengthwise, it wouldn't have fit across the river in that particular spot of John Scott Russell's shipyard in Millwall, England. So now it's being built lengthwise along the river, and as construction's going on, this is construction methods being invented on the spot. This was a t- double-hulled ship in 1851, meaning you had a outer hull and an inner hull. Why was that done? Well, it was done for strength. Everyone thought this ship was going to break in half, and that was always the big problem with boats of any sort of exorbitant size in the 1800s. They would get on top of a wave, or they would get between two waves, and the ships would break, their keel would break in half, and they would sink. And all the experts of the time thought that, Brunel had completely lost his mind. They thought that Russell would never be able to build such a thing because it was just too big. Again, we're talking a ship that was five times bigger than anything that existed on Earth at the time it was being built, and it would be the largest moving object on Earth. Period. End of story. It was also going to be the heaviest moving object on Earth. So with the double hull, the inner and outer hull, yeah, had these huge, long kind of a ribs going down the entire length of the ship. Now, these ribs, we think of a ship sometimes, we think of the ribs going kind of left to right in a U-shape. Well, these were going the entire length of the ship, and there were these huge steel girders. They were 2 feet tall, nine and a half inches wide, and they were made of half-inch thick steel, these, these kind of centering ribs that went down the ship to form its backbone. They were spaced about every 2 feet 6 inches. And they were 5 feet apart, up to 36 feet high on the sides of the ship. So this was built like anything, unlike, I should say, anything else that had been constructed at that point. The inner and outer skins were 3 quarter inch steel plate that, uh, I should say, iron plate. This is all iron. This is not steel. This is all iron plating. So it was basically kind of a ship within a ship. You know, the, the outer hull and the inner hull, yes, they were attached, but both were so incredibly strong, it was basically like having a ship set inside the hull of another ship. To give you a perspective here, this vessel would carry with it 10,000 tons of coal. 10,000 tons of coal. All of that coal would have to be manually shoveled into the boilers, and we'll get to those in a few minutes. So John Scott Russell, wanting this job so badly, came in, bid to build the hull, Halfway through building the hull, he runs out of money, and he is going to be uh, in bankruptcy. That means the bank is going to seize the shipyard. That means the ship is going to be in the hands of the bank, and that means all of this is going to come to a crashing halt very quickly. As is his mystical ability, Brunel goes to the guys that had invested in the ship and said, Hey, you better figure this out, or else the bank's going to own it, and you're going to be up the creek. So these guys that invested in the ship form a new company and they buy the ship, thereby saving it from the bank. They loan Russell some money. He's able to keep the bank off his back and they're able to continue forward. So the reason this ship is being built, as we mentioned, was to try to service this Asian in Australia marketplace, this Asian and Australia um, commerce that was so important. The way that you made money with a ship back in the day and you kind of underwrote the thing was by hauling the mail. And the guys that were as part of the greatest Eastern steamship company had gone to the government and said, hey, uh, you need to give us this mail contract because we're going to get the mail there faster and cheaper than anybody else can. So initially, the government said, yeah, it sounds pretty good. Put in a bid. It looks like you guys will probably win this thing. So that was when construction really commenced on the ship. Well, then they gave the money to somebody else. And this becomes a huge problem for the lifespan of the Great Eastern, not necessarily for the ship itself, but certainly for the... Uh, how should we say, lifespan of the financial liquidity of the investors. So let's get into some of the truly kind of steampunk madness of the Great Eastern. Mention the size, almost 700 feet long. Mention the weight. But let's talk about how this thing's actually going to be put together. And remember, at this point, ships are riveted. They are not welded together. You do not have the technology in 1851 to be welding stuff. So you rivet it. Three million rivets, and we're talking one-inch-thick rivets. These are not little pop rivets like you'd hold a little piece of sheet metal together with. These are one-inch-thick rivets, three million of them, all hand-driven by 200 rivet gangs and 1,000 working days going effectively 24 hours a day. One of the lore pieces of the ship is the fact that you had kids working on these crews, so, there were two what they called the bashers that hammered the white hot tips of the rivets, which were held in place by a guy on the inside of the hull. And then the latter was served by three guys and a candle. So, you had one kid that was running a forge heating the rivets up, another would throw the rivet up, and then a third would stick the rivet in the hole, and then finally they'd start to bash the thing in. And these guys were working between the hulls. Think of that you're in this little narrow space in between two very narrow and uh, very tall walls of cast iron. During construction, a worker fell to his death, and another actually died between the hulls. One one guy fell, a riveter fell and killed, because he fell on top of a guy, fell on top of him and killed him. Multiple children were killed by falling off the structure. And multiple workers were reported to be missing. One of these bashers fell down in between the two hulls and died. And they never took him out. He was in there for the entire lifespan of the ship. So now you know a little bit about how the construction was done. How are we moving this ship that weighs 27,000 tons when it's laden, that has 10,000 tons of coal? Obviously, we're going to use steam, but what is that steam going to do? This is where it just gets berserk. So the ship used not only a giant single-screw propeller that weighed 36 tons and was made of cast irons 24 feet across. The propeller weighed 36 tons. It also used two 56-foot-tall paddle wheels on the outside of it. So you had two six-story paddle wheels flanking the hull of the ship. You had a screw propeller the biggest the world had ever seen and still to this day bigger than pretty much anything you're going to find on any ship out there made of cast iron of course and then you had six masts where you could raise sails and this is where the steampunk element to me comes in full effect and that's what makes this victorian era of technology so amazing is that you are really at the intersection of everything you're at the very beginning of figuring out this whole screw propeller thing you have the already decided knowledge of paddle boats, paddle wheel boats everywhere. When we think of paddle wheel boats as Americans, we think of Mississippi River boats. That is the iconic view of what a paddle boat is in America. The old steamer with the two stacks coming up and the big red paddle wheel in the back. Well, you also had these side wheeler boats that had the paddles on the side and ocean-going side wheelers, nothing the likes of which the world had ever seen in terms of the Great Eastern, but it wasn't a new concept. And then finally... You had your old friend, the wind. And if all else failed, you had six masts. They named the masts after days of the week. That was how they figured out which mast you were talking about. From front to back, it was Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And I guess they left Sunday out because that was when you went to church or something. So six masts, massive propeller, massive paddle wheels on the sides. How are we moving the paddle wheel? Well, we're moving the paddle wheels with two humongous steam engines and we're moving the screw propeller with a completely different steam engine. So we have a steam engine that weighs 500 tons in the back to spin the propeller. We have two independently massive steam engines turning the paddles on either side of our ship. The combined horsepower is rumored to be somewhere around 11,000. The real horsepower is probably somewhere around 6,000. So six to 10,000 is kind of a gross estimate here just because of the fact that they didn't make really the pressure that you can make today. And we're going to talk a lot about the kind of faults of this ship when we get going, but I wanted to lay it out for you first. The size, the methods of propulsion, and then the overall just kind of absurdity of this whole thing. We'll get into the specs of these engines when we get a little bit further down the line, and they are unbelievable. But just imagine... As a person in 1851 or 1854 55, at this point, you are in a horse and buggy going down the road, and you look over, and you see a 700-foot-long ship being built out of iron with paddle wheels that are six stories tall. There is no such thing as a six-story building in 1854. That's another thing to think about. The size and scope of this in the modern world maybe seems quaint. When we look at cruise ships and cargo ships today, they're way bigger. But this was well beyond the scope that any human being had ever seen. It was employing thousands of people at a time and it had already begun to bankrupt some of those people. And now we get to the point where this ship actually has to hit the water. And this is probably where the story of the Great Eastern goes from epic to epically weird. So with this ship, the Great Eastern, being built along the edge of the Thames River, uh, being built lengthwise, and you're going to have to slide it sideways down a ramp that had been constructed. And um, physically, it seemed like it was going to be one of the most monumental tasks in human history, only because it was. No one had ever attempted to move an object this heavy before, even downhill. And as it turns out, this would become... Um, this would become a turning point in the life of the Great Eastern. It went from being this incredible spectacle that was being built to almost being viewed as one of the greatest mistakes in human history. And it all began with the fact that they couldn't get the ship into the water. There is no other way to say it. It took three months to get the ship into the water floating on its own. How is that possible? Well, we're going to talk a little bit about how that's possible and It just goes to the fact that the engineers, as smart as they were, as smart as Brunel was, and the man was an epic genius of any century of human history, even the smartest guys in the world sometimes get in over their head, and they absolutely were when they attempted to move the Great Eastern into the water. Quoting James Dugan here, he writes, the ship lay on two timber cradles which rested on 120-ton rollers placed across 160 railway ties supported on a two-foot layer of concrete which embedded 2,000 timber piles driven 30 feet through the mud to the gravel base of the Thames River. She lay 330 feet from the high tide mark on an incline of 1 in 12 feet. As the last plates were riveted in September of 1857, there arose a speculation and a clamor for the launching date. Burnell reminded the directors that he would have to have adequate power to get her into the water. The Great Eastern was the heaviest object that man had ever attempted to move. To overcome her 12,000 inner tons, Burnell would need sufficient hydraulic rams to push her, steam tugs on the river to pull her, gigantic steam winches on shore to let her down the ways, and a huge windlass to check the mass when it slid too fast, operations which would require miles of massive chain cable. The directors borrowed chains from the Admiralty, they gathered tugs and winches but gave Brunel only two small hydraulic rams. Despite misgivings, Brunel announced the launching for November 3rd of 1857 when the ship could be floating on a rising tide. The Times tried to quiet public excitement by saying the launching is likely to be a long and tedious affair which will probably occupy 8 to 10 hours. The day before, Brunel supervised the attachment of scrap iron weights to the wooden cradles on the riverside so they would sink and not foul the paddle wheels when she entered the water. He enjoined all hands. Nothing is more essential than perfect silence so that everyone can hear the simple orders quietly and deliberately given by the few who will direct. Now here's where it gets dicey, because as you can imagine, once again, 1857, we don't have a PA system. We don't have anything but a man standing with a pair of flags on top of this ship telling people whether to push or pull, move or stop. So the idea of everybody needing to be totally silent to hear one person yelling is, is not only comical, it's downright hilarious because you're going to have tugboats running and chains clattering and all this other stuff. Continuing on in Dugan's book, Brunel did not know that the company directors had issued thousands of tickets that grandstands were being built on the nearby homes during the night and that Thames Watermen were booking hordes to watch from the river. In fact, the shipyard workers are going to bring their families into the yard. and In the middle of the night, the young N.A. Woods of the London Times, who had made a name for himself in his Crimean war reporting, sent out from Printing House Square in a Brougham for Millwall. The directors had not given tickets to the press, and Woods had to pull strings to get one. So now you have the media, thousands of people watching, all of the things that uh, Brunel did not want to have happen, here they were. And for a man like Brunel, who not wanting attention is a very strange thing, because these were guys that craved attention. They built these grandiose structures. They built uh, some of the most kind of opulent and amazing things that the world had ever seen. They wanted the attention. They wanted to be the rock stars. So the fact that he told the company directors to uh, keep their mouths shut and not tell anyone about this, well, that kind of oh, uh, well, that kind of frankly tells about as much as we need to know. On November 3rd at high tide, they tried to launch the ship, and absolutely nothing happened. After it moved a couple of feet, it stopped. They did not have strong enough chains. They had the biggest chains in the country. They weren't strong enough. The hydraulic rams they had, only two of them, were too small. They could not move anything. So, back to the drawing board. Waits a couple of weeks, gets more chains, gets more rams. We go to November 19th. Nothing happens. We get to November 28th. He tries again. People are being killed by flying objects. People are being hurt by exploding rams. Nothing's happening. And now he's stuck. The ship is maybe not even halfway to the water. It has been sitting there now for the better part of a month. It will not move. It has become the uh, laughingstock of the country in so many ways because people are writing kind of newspaper cartoons about it. They are joking about it. They're talking about just building the thing into a casino and just leaving it where it sits. Um, This was absolutely a horrifying and humiliating situation for Brunel, and certainly for Scott Russell and everybody else involved in the construction of the ship. And for the investors, it is one of an increasing number of calamities and disasters for their money. Finally, on January 31st, 1858, at an ultra-high tide that was seen, you know, once every 100 years or something, they were able to get the ship to float off of its uh, dry dock, if you will, off of its ramp. They got the thing in the water, and it became a free-floating vessel. The entirety of the experience to simply get the ship into the water cost 170,000 British pounds. The ship was built on a whole budget, or planned built anyway, on a whole budget of 300,000 British pounds. And when this ship hit the water, it wasn't done. It was just the hull. They hadn't built any of the interior structure. They hadn't built any of the stuff on top. They hadn't done any of the real heavy-duty mechanical work. They had spent one-third of their money just trying to get the thing into the water beyond anything else. And they had already gone way over budget just trying to build the hull. So as the ship's being fitted, uh, once again, the company is bankrupt. And now they form a new company called The Great Ship Company, where they raised $340,000 dollars. They pay 160, I should say, with 340,000 pounds. They are able to buy the ship basically from themselves for 160,000 pounds, and anybody that had invested in this ship twice now got soaked twice. They lost all their money twice, basically. So from January to the August of 1858, the ship is fitted out, meaning it's uh, all the interior structure is built, the uh, cabins are built. This ship is designed to carry four thousand passengers four, thousand passengers in 1858 insanity first class second class third class they have all that type of stuff. so as the ship is done getting fitted out in August um, we Brunel is now very ill. Um, Brunel unfortunately for his the majority of his adult life was a chain smoker of cigars and this did not do him well in the end because uh, Brunel dies. Uh, really just days after the ship's maiden voyage on September 6th of 1859. So September 6th of 1859, it is a joyous day in England as the Great Eastern is going to sail out. It's going to show off for everybody. You're going to get a look and see this kind of what they people were calling a mountain of iron on the water uh, moving around. And so... Off it goes, and it's traveling, and it's looking pretty good. All the systems are working, and then a massive explosion rocks the front of the ship, and a steam valve had been left closed, and the ensuing steam uh, pressure buildup caused a humongous explosion, large enough to actually blow one of the massive funnels right off the ship. It did not sink the ship. It was so well built that the explosion, well, it killed five people and left the ship broken, it did not sink it. So they limp the thing back in, they figure out what caused the problem, and they fix it. One of the few times in this ship's history they are able to pinpoint something and actually fix it and make sure it did not happen again. On the business side of the ship, the calamities kind of continued. They had struck a deal with the city of Portland, Maine, that it would be their preferred port, that they would sail from places like Liverpool, England, and they would sail to Portland, Maine. And at this time in history, if you're a city the size of Portland, Maine, and you're going to have this big ship coming, which with what they assume will be filled with thousands of passengers and all of this cargo, it is a big deal, and so big a deal that the city built a special pier just for the Great Eastern. A ship this large does not have a place to dock itself really anywhere in the world unless you build it specifically for them. Portland, Maine, seeing the potential investment, much like uh, small islands see now with the arrival of cruise ships, they kind of had the same idea, so they're going to build this special pier for the Great Eastern. All well and good, until they decide that New York's actually going to be the place they go sail. (laughs) So the investors completely screw over Portland, Maine, um, and just decide, eh, you know, we're just going to go to New York. So there was all this very angry media at that point where... Um, the Portland, Maine media was furious at the, at the shipping company that they would kind of uh, blow them off and treat them like a, a second-rate city, and so that was um, yet another financially ruined or financially ruinous decision made by people involved with, or directly or indirectly, with the Great Eastern. June of 1860, the ship gets ready to make its first trip Across the Atlantic to the United States. It is going to be a watershed moment for the ship. It's going to prove how fast it is and really prove how seaworthy it is, going to prove how comfortable it is as a luxury liner and also show how good it is at carrying cargo. So, let's talk a little bit about what will be propelling this particular ship. I mentioned before it had two sets of engines. The first set of engines we're going to talk about, or the first engine, is going to be the one designed by James Watt. And the engine that James Watt designed is the one that is set there to spin the propeller. And this is an incredibly monstrous piece. So this is a 500-ton engine that is a horizontally opposed, basically, four-cylinder steam engine. So if you can think about a Volkswagen engine, but um, slightly larger. Slightly larger in the fact that it had a 7-foot bore and a 4-foot stroke. And it operated on about 25 PSI worth of steam. And the reality is the reason that this ship was so slow and really was slow and efi- was because they could not, at that time, generate the types of pressures needed to really make it more efficient. So 25 PSI in this massive engine means it's pretty lazy. And we'll, we'll find out as uh, shipbuilding goes on and steam engines get more and more refined, they're able to get way more power out of much smaller engines at various times in history because of the increased pressures that they operate under. But 25 PSI, you got your 7-foot uh, bore, you got your 4-foot stroke, and that is what's going to be turning a solid 150-foot-long propeller shaft that weighed 60 tons in and of itself. The propeller, as I mentioned, 24 feet in diameter, 36 tons of weight, and the ship could make nine knots if it was only using the propeller. So if you're only gonna go on the prop, you can go nine knots, basically nine miles an hour. Now the paddle's 56 feet tall, and it had two basically V-shaped two-cylinder engines, one on either side of the ship. These had a six-foot bore and a 14-foot stroke. They turned at 10 RPM, and each paddle that it was turning weighed 90 tons apiece. So let's just go back over those numbers for a second. Two V-shaped style engines, each one having two cylinders, six feet in bore, 14 feet in stroke, spinning at the massive speed of 10 RPM. The 56-foot-tall 90-ton paddles could make 7.25 knots if being used by themselves. To power the paddles, there were four 50-ton boilers with 40 tons of water in them. There were separate boilers for the big engines. There was also separate boilers to make steam for other various functions of the ship, like heat. Um, There were other boilers. There was a total of of 10 total boilers on the ship, and that's why it has five funnels. So not all the boilers were powering the engines. There was also various different uh, parts of the ship that required steam to function. We mentioned the sales—a total of 1.5 acres worth of sales, if they were all spread at the same time. That is uh, over 60,000 square feet of sales. An acre is 43,000 square feet and change. Acre and a half is going to get us over 60,000 square feet of sales. And again, it goes back to that steampunk idea: this this incredible, audacious machine that they thought that they could build and tame, and really had no problems with. They had. They, had, they were so, I want to say dumb to what they didn't know, but they were ignorant to the things they didn't understand, and they just thought, hey, we'll just make it bigger and better, and that's how it's going to go. And it kind of went that way for a while. But again, let's go back to the finances, now that we know the mechanical side of it. A 4,000-passenger ship left England in June of 1860 with 35 paid passengers on it. That is 35, not 3,500, not 350, 35 paid passengers and 418 crew. And this is the beginning of what will turn into several years of absolute financial disaster for the owners, however many sets of them, of the Great Eastern. Oh yeah, remember that whole thing about The Great Eastern was built to carry mail and go to Australia and do all that kind of thing. Well, when they didn't get the mail contract, um, there was no real reason for the ship to ever go east. So for most of its life, the Great Eastern actually spent most of its time going west. Now, the people that traveled on this first voyage, um, they enjoyed it. They really did enjoy it, and they really didn't have any sort of problems. They said that the ship was incredibly comfortable to travel on. The, um, uh, obviously, we have 35 people on a 4,000 passenger capacity ship that is the largest moving object on Earth. Uh, it feels pretty roomy, and it did. Uh, they were called the, decks, they called the deck Oxford Street because it was wide enough and long enough to be just like an English street. And we talk about some of the other crazy things about this. When you talk about a ship in 1858 traveling across the ocean, um, we don't have refrigeration like we have these days, right? You don't have electric refrigeration in 1858. You also are going to be traveling for 10 days or so to get across the Atlantic Ocean at this time. So what do you do for food? Like, how are you keeping the meat cold? How are you keeping fresh food fresh for that period of time? Well, the meat answer is very easy. They brought their own cows. The chicken answer is very easy. They brought their own chicken. Where did the bacon come from? It came from the pigs they brought with them. So this ship was actually traveling with its own kind of farm on the deck, and they would occasionally let the animals out to walk around. So imagine you're on the top deck taking a stroll in your Victorian-era outfit, And, oh, there goes a cow, and there's a pig, and guess what we're having for dinner tonight? Probably that. It's insane to think about, but it actually happened. So, as this ship, which is burning 550 tons of coal a day, and that 550 tons of coal is being manually shoveled by the poor sons of guns whose job it is to do that, it is belching black smoke, pretty much everything's getting sooty, it's kind of how it went back then. People almost kind of took it for granted. So as it goes to the United States in 1860, um, it's a you know, successful trip. The ship handles the waves very well. Nobody really has any sort of complaints or problems, and the ship can make the trip in, in eight to nine days. In May of 1861, they make a second trip to America. 100 passengers came. They took 194 Back to England. And most importantly, they took 5,000 tons of wheat back to England with them. And this is the first time a ship of this size would actually have economic impact on a country. Because when the 5,000 tons of American wheat came back from the ports of the United States and into England, it was cheaper to ship that wheat from the United States to England than it was to actually buy English wheat. And this is an example of how the economics of these ships really kind of began to change the world. Now, the ship is losing ungodly amounts of money because there's no people traveling on it, but the cargo is kind of offsetting some of these losses. And when that wheat came back, it opened a lot of people's eyes, and actually it scared a lot of the farmers that they were going to be put out of business because if the ship can move that much wheat, then what about things like cotton? What about things like corn? What about staples that English farmers have been growing and making their living on? And they were right to be nervous about that. As the Civil War was going on in the United States, the Great Eastern was making these trips back and forth across the ocean to bring the cargo, not only of England, but the cargo of the United States back to England in the mercantile process. There is an interesting note that in 1861, the government of England chartered the ship to bring about 3,000 British soldiers over to Canada. And again, one of the brief and very short, shining lights of financial liquidity uh, was the fact that uh, the government paid the, the freight on these soldiers to go over, and they actually made some money on that voyage. The company's still losing a lot of money each and every time it went. One thing it should be noticed is the fact that when the Great Eastern made its first trip to the city of New York, um, as financially rough as that was, just on the face of it. Um, they made it worse because the captain, as he was trying to bring the ship in, uh, struck the wharf, which then broke the wharf, um, and people began to freak out and run and scream out of the way. The big giant paddle box chewed into the wharf 5 or 10 feet. Um, it cost them thousands of dollars to pay the city to fix the wharf. And then as the ship sat there, it uh, turned into a giant tourist attraction. They are actually charging about 25 cents to come on. People could stay on all day. And they made some money doing that, but again, it wasn't enough to maintain the cost. Also, as it turns out, if you park a ship in a city and charge uh, a small amount of money to let people on, um, the people that you get are not necessarily the ones you want. A lot of stuff was stolen. A lot of booze was stolen. They said the decks were covered in tobacco juice from all the people spitting tobacco as they walked around the ship. And um, basically that too turned into an absolute unmitigated disaster. We fast forward now to September of 1861, which is one of the scariest incidents involving the Great Eastern in its life as a passenger-going ship. Captain James Walker was crossing the, Uni- the Atlantic Ocean going from England to the United States. It was the ship's third official trip from England to New York City, and they sailed into a massive storm. So you have a ship that had been through the seas and they had done all this math that, you know, it's so big that the biggest kind of storm wave that anyone had ever seen would still not be enough to kind of upset her balance. Well, all great plans certainly run into some unexpected wrinkles and that's exactly what happened here. So as Captain Walker is taking the ship across the Atlantic Ocean, the massive storm kicks up and this gale starts blowing the ship all over the place to the point where... The ship starts rolling at a 45 degree angle left to right. Nothing is bolted down. Everything is being smashed inside. People are dying inside because they're being thrown around the ship. And all of a sudden, it gets even worse because the rudder breaks. The rudder starts smashing into the propeller. The propeller is starting to chew up the rudder. And then one of the paddle wheels gets smashed into the side of the ship, and it's bent and broken and rubbing on the hull. So they have no propulsion they have no lifeboats anymore they've had to jettison the lifeboats or the lifeboats have smashed and fallen off the side of the ship and they're in the middle of the atlantic with absolutely no way to steer and no way to move the ship so this goes on for 24 hours and the crew says nothing to the passengers they're just like hey we're working on it you know tough storm out there as everybody's flopping around people's things are being destroyed um Again, people have died from getting hit with furniture, from getting hit with things falling off walls. It is, by all means, a a completely horrifying picture when you think about being tossed about um, on this leviathan of a ship, being tossed about at 45 degree angles. The captain tried some kind of old school tricks. They took one of the spars from the deck, one of the big giant four ton um, mast spars, if you will, and threw it over the side. With a hawser attached to it, which was supposed to try to stabilize the ship, but it works on a little clipper ship. But this thing was so big, it just snapped the rope, and that that stuff all floated away. So as um, as this is getting worse and worse, finally some of the passengers, in the most 18, you know, 61 thing ever, some of the passengers form a committee, and they they approach the captain with this committee, and they demand answers, and they demand to tour the rest of the ship, which the captain allows them to do. They tore the entire ship and they find out that uh, things are way worse than they absolutely thought they could have been. There is all kinds of damage below decks. There is an incredible amount of... Um, really an incredible amount of damage and, and they don't really know how they are going to fix the rudder issue, which is the most serious thing because they have no directional control of the ship. Not only that, the captain doesn't really have a plan on how to get that back and things that he has tried have failed miserably and that's where we need to enter a 38-year-old guy who graduated Harvard and his name was Hamilton E. Towel and Towel was a civil engineer who was coming back from building shipyards along the Danube, the Danube River in Vienna, Austria. So uh, Towel's like, hey, uh, maybe I can help with this and he becomes part of this inspection team and they get down to the area where the rudder is and they discover the reason that the rudder is out of control is the fact that there is a 10-inch thick cast iron, like everything else in the time, 10-inch thick cast iron uh, shaft that's supposed to control the rudder, and it has completely sheared off. The shaft was so big that they were using cannonballs as uh, kind of a roller bearing for this thing to ride around in. And after it got smashed, you know, the deflection of the ocean, just the, the, the pressures involved, sheared off the cast iron post. So Tao looks at all this and he goes back to his room and he comes up with this brilliant idea to use chains in kind of a block and tackle style situation to make a triangulated uh, holding system with the chains and they would run a second set of chains down from the control room and that second set of chains would now be able to steer the stabilized rudder using those triangulated chains to stabilize it, then another smaller set of chains to actually provide the steering. So the captain initially rejects this idea for another idea where he was going to send his own guys down the outside of the ship in those in the, basically the little boatswain's uh, boat chair, which is basically a piece of wood with a knot under it and a piece of rope going up through it, to try to fix it from the outside. They actually tried one or two of those, and uh, one of the guys disappeared into the sea, so they finally went with Towel's plan. Once they got Towel's plan in place, it actually worked and they were able to regain some control of the ship. And 75 hours after this storm and the impossible gale began, it was over. The seas cleared up, and they are able to actually get the ship 300 miles back to Ireland. They are only 300 miles off the coast of Ireland from their uh, journey that began in England when this whole thing happened. They go back and get the ship repaired. Now, once again... Uh, More money being spent on a losing venture here. So as we continue on to tell this story, there is yet another bankruptcy, yet another new company formed and yet another usage for the ship uh, or another name for the ship in terms of its financial backers. And they just keep throwing money at this thing and they're bankrupting. Every time this happens, they're bankrupting tons of investors, not necessarily the guys at the top. But the moms and pops that are throwing 50, 100 pounds, 150 pounds in as these low-level investors are the ones getting smoked every time that they go bankrupt because they're getting nothing. The guys at the top of the company are kind of skimming off. They're taking some money here and there when the different voyages get made, and they're able to make side deals on different cargo, stuff like that. But the average investors are just getting absolutely smoked every single time. Um, Every single time this thing goes from uh, port to port and goes from hand to hand. I also love to think about the fact that when we consider the Great Eastern and what it's doing in the United States, um, you know, it's traveling there during the American Civil War. You know, it's, it's a weird thing to think about, but as this ship is sitting in port in places like New York, there are Civil War battles going on at that exact time. And I know we had the Monitor and the Merrimack, the ironclads of the U.S. Civil War, but there is nothing like the Great Eastern. And it seems almost like a, a spaceship sitting in New York Harbor when you have these guys with you know long rifles and cotton unit or yeah long uniforms and or long rifles and wool uniforms standing in rank and shooting at each other um, you know in places like Shiloh and Bull Run at the same time the two things just don't seem to align historically but they absolutely do so we continue on with this series of calamities in May of 1862 a bright spot in New York City they picked up 138 passengers and they dropped 138 off in New York City They took 389 home, but in May of 1862, charging admission, they had 3,000 visitors a day coming to look and board the ship and, and just walk around it. Now, in August of 1862, one of the largest passenger and cargo loads ever recorded on the Great Eastern left England. 1,530 passengers and tons and tons of freight Now, because the ship was fully loaded now, it was pulling the full 30 feet of draft, meaning there was 30 feet of ship below the water level that you couldn't see. They get to New York City, and they decide to take a different path into the harbor than they have been because they know there's some shallows and there's a sandy hook sandbar that they're trying to avoid. So they go a different way into the harbor. They get a harbor pilot, as they are supposed to have, and the harbor pilot's kind of helping them out. Now, remember, this harbor pilot has... Uh, helped bring boats into the harbor probably by the hundreds over the course of their lives, but none of those boats have ever had a 30-foot draft. So off of Montauk, Long Island, the ship hits a previously unrecorded rock that no one knew was there about 30 feet below the surface because nothing's ever been that deep trying to get in the harbor. So the ship hits the rock. People feel it. They don't really know what it is. They just feel like, oh, we must have scraped on the bottom or something. And the ship picks up a slight list. Well, as it turns out, after getting into the harbor and getting themselves docked and sitting there, they got a diver. That diver went down, and there was a 9-foot-wide, 83-foot gash in the outer hull of the ship. Had this been a single-hull ship, it would have sunk almost immediately. The water would have rushed in, probably would have torn the cast-iron plates open like paper, and the ship would have gone to the bottom, and that would have been the end of it. As the case may be, or as the case is, you had the double-hull action going on. So only the outer hull was breached. This is great news because it means the ship isn't going to sink. This is terrible news because there is no way to beach this thing and work on it. There is no dry dock big enough to hold it in the world. And as far as anybody knows, there's no one even equipped in the United States of America to fix the problem. As the ship sits there for days and then weeks, there are ideas floated. There are ideas rejected. There are investors that are panicking because now the ship is sitting still, not generating revenue, having to pay a docking fee for sitting where it's sitting. And there's no real idea of how they're going to get this thing fixed. So we get to now the two guys who will stand in here as pretty amazing dudes. This is James and Ed Renwick, or Edward Renwick. Edward Renwick and James Renwick approach the ship owners they approach the guys who are handling the ship and they say hey we got an idea we're going to fix this and we're going to do it underwater we're going to build these little underwater caissons these dry docks and we're going to attach them to the ship and then pump the water out of them and then we're going to go under there and repair your cast iron outer hull what do you think and they said oh by the way to make this deal even better you're not going to owe us anything unless it works So the ship guys are like, yeah, yeah, let's do that. Because they were convinced this idea was never going to work. But they needed to do something, and they needed to try to at least give up the impression that they were trying to fix the ship. So the Renwick brothers go to work. They build these caissons. They pump the water out. They're watertight. And what was supposed to take about two weeks ended up taking three months. And the main reason it took three months was because nobody in America— could build the size and the thickness of cast iron sheets they needed to fix the ship. No one had ever built anything like this outside of England. And even in England, only one person had ever built anything like this. So the availability of the cast iron sheets and that size and thickness was a problem. But also the problem was that there was a very big scarcity of iron because the Civil War was going on. And cast iron was pretty much it for making anything of volume or weight at that point. So... Yes, the Renwick's are successful. The Renwick's actually get paid. The Renwick's are among the very few people in the history of the Great Eastern to actually come out ahead here. And it took them three months, and it cost 70,000 pounds. On January sixth, 1863, the ship leaves New York City. And what nobody knew at the time is that it would be one of the last trips it ever made because, yes, it docked and left three times over the course of 1863. Those trips were kind of disastrous. 2,700 passengers on the first one took 970 back, and then on the way back on a second trip in 1863, the Great Eastern struck and sunk a 775-ton sailing ship called the Jane, killing two people, which cost the company, you guessed it, more money. They had to pay the owners of the Jane for sinking their ship. They had to pay the families of the people were killed because of it and in early 1864 the great eastern was parked with no intention of doing anything but being sold finally the investors had got to the point where they said no more we're done and they couldn't raise any more money and no one else wanted the thing so what was the plan what do you do with a massive the most massive ship in the world that nobody wants to own you have a raffle Now this is yet another amazing part of this story. So the ship gets back from New York after hitting the now-named Great Eastern Rock. It's been repaired, and Daniel Gooch, who was the guy running the company at that point, and who was the guy that worked very closely with now the late uh, Isambard Kingdom Brunel to build the great, Great Western Railway, had gone to Lloyd's of London, who insured the ship and tried to put in an insurance claim. To quote James Dugan's book, the insurance company had already refused to entertain a claim for damage. Daniel Gooch could not sue the United States for failure in geography. The company was 350,000 pounds deeper in debt. So the idea was made that the ship was to be raffled off, basically in a lottery. And there were laws in Frankfurt, Germany at this time that had kind of lenient rules in terms of running a lottery. So they were going to try to run this Lottery sanctioned uh, almost by the German government and as you can imagine the English government at this point uh, wanted nothing to do with that So they put the kibosh on that idea Basically, it came down to an auction and this ship which had cost upwards of a million pounds over the course of its life So far to its investors and had returned not even 10% of that in so many ways Was then bought by Daniel Gooch the guy who was running the Great Eastern Company or the great ship company steamship company Gooch buys it with a partner, pays 20,000 pounds for the entire functional ship. It has gone from being this million pound, amazing, once in a generation cultural and engineering landmark to a giant floating white elephant, basically worthless to anybody but Gooch. So the 25,000 pound Gooch spends to buy the ship seems foolhardy because no one really knows what he was going to do with it. But Gooch had a plan, and Gooch's plan is the only thing that saves the reputation and saves the overall life story of the Great Eastern from being one of complete and epic failure. About this time in history, the telegraph becomes an important part of communication in the world domestically in countries and even in connected countries like the United States and Canada or all of the European countries, you can communicate with them. But cross-ocean communication did not exist outside of writing letters. So unless you were a letter writer, you would mail your letter and we would take weeks and weeks to get it where it needed to go. The idea is that we want to get some transcontinental conversation happening via telegraph. And the only way to do that is with physical telegraph lines. You have to have a physical connection between the continents in the form of a big electric cable to get the telegraph signals to where you want it to go. Back in the 1850s, a telegraph was laid. A telegraph cable was laid between the United States and England. And it functioned for a little while, and then it failed, and no one knew why. So the idea of reviving this idea and doing it in a better fashion than it had been done before, was what the world wanted. And a guy named Cyrus Field, who was friendly with Daniel Gooch, was behind driving this idea of telegraph communications globally. When we think of how long it took to communicate with somebody, best case scenario, you could put a letter on a ship in England and get it to your family member that lived in a big city in maybe two weeks. It would make the trip in 10 days, then it would get processed, then it would get put in someone's mailbag, and then maybe gets dropped in the right mailbox. If you were sending it by domestic mail, probably about the same time frame, unless it was going very close. We have the very short era of the Pony Express in the United States and other stuff like that. But really, the idea of any sort of instantaneous communication was was fanciful. But Cyrus Field understood that there was going to be a massive, massive market for the idea of transcontinental communication between countries. This would be huge in terms of military, in terms of, uh, in terms of news sharing. All that kind of stuff. Everybody wanted to know what was going on around the world. And at this point, you had to wait weeks and weeks to hear it. So the Great Eastern is bought for $25,000, and it is converted into a cable-laying ship, which may seem like a bit of a letdown for this big giant of the seas, this masterpiece of luxury, is now going to simply be just basically laying a cable between two countries. But it was the only real ship that was equipped to do the job because... They took out a lot of the staterooms, they took out a lot of the uh, amenities, and they put in these giant tanks, or I guess we would call them vats because they have an open top. So these giant vats would hold thousands of miles of cable each. Can you imagine a vat big enough that you could put a 1,000 people inside it if you wanted to? A 1,000 people would fit in this vat, and that vat was filled to the top with a coil of steel cable, that was wrapped that was the telegraph cable or copper cable wrapped in jute and other rubber and other stuff like that so multiple vats of these cables that that when you ran out of one you would join it and you'd keep going and the cable would break and you'd have to fish it out of the ocean and it was a very tedious and hard process but it was one that the great eastern turned out to be ideal for especially for the longest runs there was a captain named captain Halpern who took controlled the ship in 1866 and he was the captain until 1878 and over the course of that time it laid over 30,000 miles of cable from england to the united states france to newfoundland france to the united states and even from aden which is uh, basically what we now call yemen all the way to bombay and other various places so You reconfigure the ship, you haul thousands of miles of cable on this ship, and you lay thousands of it at a time connecting these different countries and different cultures, really kind of changing the way the world works. And when we talk about what's going on inside this ship, when you're laying cable, you have guys in those tanks making sure the cable's being unfurled. You have guys on the deck making sure that the actual there's a big kind of winch that's that's lowering the cable and that's managing it as it goes into the ocean. And you have guys monitoring the signal inside the ship in a kind of a monitoring room that tells you. And they're going the to ones that are going to let you know if it broke or not, because when the signal stops, you have to stop and blindly fish the thing out of the ocean and then repair it, which they did multiple times. It's It's amazing to think about that. You're in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, or the middle of the Red Sea, wherever you are. And this cable just breaks and falls off the back of your ship. And then, with no sort of sonar, with no radar, with no ability to see what you're doing, you're able to blindly, after making dozens of attempts, grab onto it with a grapple hook that you're simply dropping into the waves. That's why Captain Halpern is uh, recognized as an incredible captain, because he was able to manage this ship so accurately that they were able to make these cable fixes. And this was not normally done in great weather either. I mean, you're out there in the ocean. Obviously, sometimes it would be nice and quiet, but the reality is for a lot of the time, it was being tossed around and everything else. And so we talk about what this cable was. It was about an inch, inch and a half thick, and it was wrapped in a couple of different things, but it was really protecting the copper in the middle, and the copper was what was transmitting the signals. Imagine this. If you were in England, well, let's say you're in France. If you're in France before the cable is laid to Bombay, and you, set, you want to send a telegram to Bombay from France, it would take nine days to send a telegram from France to Bombay before this line was laid. Why? Because the telegraphs are all locally controlled. So your local telegraph office would send it to the next one, and him to the next one, and him to the next one, and him to the next one. The next one. But you also have to remember that there's not just one telegraph going at a time and people would prioritize where the traffic went. So if you're in Bombay, um, the Bombay telegraphs get all the preference over the stuff coming in from the outside. So just imagine that. Imagine the fact that it would take nine days to send a telegraph from France to India in the late 1850s. Really, now we're talking the the mid-1860s. It's incredible. And after this was done, it would take maybe a day, Depending on how busy it was, sometimes it would take just minutes. And it's an interesting story to think about when the telegraph cables were fully done, you would be getting, you know, like President Grant would be sending a telegraph to Queen Victoria and saying, hey, cool, check this out. Like it really was like people like texting for the first time, like, hey, uh, how's everything going over there? That's kind of when you look at the basic communications, that's really kind of how it worked. And it's a weird thing to think about, the world being so disconnected and then uh, really at the kind of flip of the switch, there it is again. The world becomes this, this very shrunken place, long, long before the Internet, of course. And we can thank the Great Eastern for what is effectively the invention of the Reuters news service. As Reuters was born in France, and it was born uh, by a guy named, you guessed it, Reuter, who got money to have one of these... Cables, almost privately funded from France to the United States. His first goal was not the news. His first goal was to lower the cost of sending a transcontinental telegraph, which at the time, before Reuters started to do it, would cost you about 20 bucks. which 20 bucks at this time period in history, of course, is an astounding amount of money. So the only reason you'd really be sending these intercontinental telegraphs was for important news or important information. Reuters decided to make his line cost basically $9. And when you take it in half like that, you start yourself a little bit of a price war, and soon it wasn't costing much at all to have international communication between people in different parts of the world. So Reuters new service also came from the Great Eastern and was born over the French telegraph lines. And then, even this chapter of the ship's history came to a close with the end of cable laying in the late 1870s. The Great Eastern went into its final kind of sad act. It went back to England and again uh, was attempted to be used as a cruise ship and again failed miserably in that regard. Nobody wanted to go on it anymore. They spent all kinds of money reverting the boat from a cable laying ship to a cruise liner, became a huge failure. And basically, it went back to auction. It turned into a Uh, floating circus to some degree, guys would, uh, I should say one promoter bought the ship and turned it into a massive floating circus. So you'd be able to go see different acts in different parts of the ship. And believe it or not, for a couple of years, this actually proved to be a pretty workable business plan. It made a bunch of money. um, And basically, as I can quote once again from James Dugan, ship proud Liverpool looked at the eyesore with growing indignation. Over 50,000 people paid shilling admission in the first month, and the Whiteside Bank Holiday in June saw 20,000 go aboard in four days. The Liverpool exhibition didn't turn out to be much of an attraction. The Great Eastern stole the show. Folk from the farms, mills, and potteries came to see the great ship and neglected the short-side fare of industry and navigation. They didn't leave much money in Liverpool. Lewis's department store seemed to be getting it all. Shipping men resented the department store people as landlubbers exploiting the pride of Britain's ocean might. Why were they doing that? Well, it was Lewis's department store that was putting on this exhibition, and they had painted their logo down the side of the ship in kind of a final indignity for the Great Eastern's pride. It was now basically just a giant glorified floating billboard. There were outcries in the clubs and wrath letters to the press. Orthodox Marine historians of the day sniff at the cheap tailors who took her over. None of them interested in the fact that a half million visitors had a whacking good time on the Great Eastern in 1886 and that as a showman and advertiser, Lewis Cohen demonstrated something like genius. The critics had no practical art- alternative to offer Cohen's genius when it came to being a promoter of the Great Eastern. Again, one of the few people that made money on the deal because Cohen bought the ship for Lewis's department store in a uh, what we would now call fire sale price. We continue on with the book. As autumn came, the charter expired and the ship reverted to Edward D'Amato, a previous owner. He didn't know what to do with her. His Gibraltar coaling enterprise had failed. He had wanted to use the ship to haul coal to Gibraltar. Gibraltar definitely did not want the Great Eastern, and a syndicate proposed to fit out the ship with ice lockers to carry dead meat from South South America. But after some newspaper noise, the promoters vanished. Once again, nobody can figure out what to do with this thing. It's just too big. Unwieldy. Now it's really slow, and the fact of the matter is, it's just not up to snuff with even smaller sh- smaller ships that could carry less stuff, could do it as quickly, and kind of run circles around the Great Eastern. So it had lost almost every economic advantage that it had in its construction. Effectively, now the ship was auctioned off. So there was uh, a series of auctions. Nobody met the reserve. Um, it just. <laughs> Nobody wanted it, and that's the sad thing about it. You have an engineering masterpiece of its time, which would not be surpassed in size for another 50 years. Nobody wanted it. Nobody knew what to do with it. And finally, a month after the melancholy fifth auction, D'Amato's received an offer of 16,000 pounds from Henry Bath & Sons, and he sold the ship instantly, lest the buyer entertain a second thought. London Traders was the seventh operating company to lose on the Great Eastern. And the stockholders were paid off fourteen dollars or fourteen cents a dollar, fourteen cents on the dollar back of what they paid. If you had invested a dollar in the London Traders Limited Company, you got fourteen cents back. Bad math. Henry Bath and Sons were metal dealers of Liverpool, London, and Swansea. They were in the unsentimental business of breaking ships, and their company executives, Mr. Morris and Greer, set out immediately to organize dismantling operations. They entrained to Barrow and Furnace and talked about the Royal Navy harbor master, Captain Barrett, about putting the ship into Ramsden Dock to break her up. The newly built dock was long enough and had a gate 100 feet wide. But by removing the paddle wheels, she would fit through. So if you take the paddle wheels off the side, it would fit through that 100 foot gate. The men gazed upon their big possession and the sight stole their reason. They began mooning to each other about removing the old engines, installing new ones, and making her pay in the cattle trade, or perhaps in carrying bulk petroleum. They went back to Barrow to arrange for a refit in Ransdom Dock, and Captain Barrett saw the fever in their eyes and refused to let them have the dock. With the spell upon them, the new owners announced that they would return the Great Eastern to Liverpool under the power of a propeller alone. They engaged a temporary crew of 100 runners as casual seamen who sailed a ship on its last voyage to the scrapping yard. Escorted by the steamer Stormcock, the great ship left Clyde on a fair day, August 22, 1888. She made made barely four knots, and it was decided to take a tow cable from the Stormcock as she was unable to maintain even that speed. Coming down the Firth of Clyde past Elisa Craig, the the weather frowned and a wind came up. It increased in force, and the great eastern fell to rolling heavily. The screw lost its bite in the waves, and the stormcock's master did all she could to hold the tow, but the big ship broke the cable. The escort could not come near the heaving monster to pass another. The runners clung for their lives as the Great Eastern leapt helplessly adrift, and she galloped for four hours in her last storm. The wind died, the tow was regained, and it took three days to reach the mercy. What makes this even funnier at the end is that once they get the ship back, they have an auction to let people come on and buy things off of the ship and people buy the brass fittings and they buy the chandeliers and they buy the gunmetal railings and they buy all this stuff and, um, 290,000 pounds they made just on these little bitty auctions alone. Remember they only paid less than 20,000 pounds for the ship. So these guys, uh, making an incredible amount of money, basically a 35% profit already, um, on, on just the small pieces we're talking about here uh, before they even started selling the steel. But, one last gasp of the Great Eastern. Before the ship dismantlers could collect their true bonanza, the shipbreaker still had to disassemble the parts within his timetable. The aged and failing Sir Daniel Gooch read of the auction in the London Standard and wrote in his diary, It looks like the last of the grand old ship, the Great Eastern. I would much rather the ship was broken up than turned to base uses poor old ship you deserved a better fate the breaking up began in may of 1889 and 31 years really after the ship had launched which is an amazing lifespan for something like this that it didn't sink it didn't break it 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 broke everything it ever hit including docks and other ships but it never went to the bottom itself it hit rocks got torn open didn't sink but it was an absolute financial disaster for basically everybody but the guys hired to dismantle it. The workers removed the interior fittings on schedule, but the well-founded hull defied them. More than half the shipbreaker's income and all of his profit lay in the double iron hull. The oxyacetylene torch had not yet been invented yet, and the men worked the rivets loose by hammering on the plates, driving chisels under the heads, and sawing and smashing away. It was soon evident that more effort was required to remove a rivet than it had taken to drive it a generation before. Remember, three million rivets they were going to try to remove by hand like this and then make a profit on it. In October of 1889, Sir Daniel Gooch died, survived by the Great Eastern, which was taking Henry Bath & Sons for one of her famous rides. The ship challenged a generation of mechanical minds, and the final problem was how to take her apart. Bath & Sons solved it with the invention of the Wrecker's Big Iron Ball. A derrick was erected over the ship and a stationary steam engine raised the heavy iron ball to a spar and it was released by a trigger. The impact shocked two shires and arrested gossip, deals, and assignations. But as it started the rivets, the awful repeated crashes of that ball eclipsed any noise Jimmy Patton could have made with the gunpowder plot introduced to blow the ship up as a joke on the Cheshire. Life was torment for the families living near the gridiron. Eighteen months later, The breaking crews got to the double bottom of the ship. They worked harder there, and they worked longer, bitter, bruising days to uproot the cells. Mr. J.M. Lamb recounted the author a memory of standing on Prince's Landing stage one day in 1890 when the Rock Ferry Boat came in. Off it came a rough gang of men, all shouting and cussing. A little man was laying down the law, and I, being nine years old, was very frightened. I asked Papa what these men wanted. Said my Papa, they are vexed because they cannot earn their salt. When I got home, I asked my mother what it was when a man could not earn his salt. Papa began to laugh and told Ma that the shipbreakers working on the Great Eastern had gone on strike. They were paid by the ton and had gotten down to the keel. It was the last mutiny. One day they were breaching a compartment in the inner shell on the port side when a shriek went up that stopped all work and ran wildly through the port and country. One who hurried to the new ferry to see it was David Duff. He wrote this. They found a skeleton inside the ship's shell in the tank tops. It was the skeleton of the basher who was missing. Also, the frame of the bash boy was found with him. And so there you are, sir. That is all I can tell you of the Great Eastern. In 1899, 41 years after the ordeal of the launching at the Isle of Dogs, a longer vessel was launched, the 704-foot White Star Liner Oceanic. She was smaller in displacement by 6,000 tons. The first ship to exceed the Great Eastern came in 1910, when Cunard launched the successor to the presumptuous Great Eastern. The name was Lusitania. We all know the story of Lusitania, don't we? The passenger ship sunk by a World War I German U-boat, killing everyone aboard and launching the United States into World War I. Yeah, kind of a star-crossed lineage of ships and a star-crossed lineage there. That is the story of the Great Eastern, a mechanical marvel, a financial disaster. And one of those things you might never have heard of before listening to this podcast. We'll be back with more Dorkomotive podcasts soon. I'm Brian Loans, and I hope you enjoyed listening. And the next time you're on a ship or on a boat of any type, just think about that. In 1854 through 1858, a ship was built 700 feet long powered by 551 tons of coal a day, carrying 10,000 tons of coal in its belly using paddle wheels 60 feet tall, 6,500 square feet or 6,500 square yards of sails, and a ship's propeller bigger than anything that was built before or since 24 feet long and 36 tons. You think things are crazy in the world now? Imagine how crazy they were back in the 1800s. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon. This episode of the Dorkomotive Podcast is being presented by NitroActive.net. Nitroactive.net carries the best in nostalgia West Coast drag strip t-shirts as well as hot rod and car culture t-shirts from places like Moon Eyes, Laid Back. Lucky 13, SoCal Speed Shop, Hollywood Hot Rods, and more. They also have a massive inventory of vintage collectible hot rod, car craft, hop-up, popular hot rodding, drag racing, super stock, and drag illustrated magazines, as well as classic and vintage photos. Visit Nitroactive.net for all your vintage hot rod and drag racing needs. Use promo code DORK at checkout and save 10% on your next purchase at Nitroactive.net.